You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, we are in Nashville for the 10th anniversary of the DUI Defense Lawyers Association and also our annual spring seminar. So, yeah. Good times. Um, had a great party here, a black and white uh, event last <laughs> night on the ball, 27th yeah. floor, the, the rooftop of the Westin Hotel here in Nashville. It was oh, glamorous. Awesome. <laughs> it was uh, awesome. uh, pulling it all together. Yeah, well, you guys did a lot of work. Those of you who were on the organizing committee for that, I'm surprised that uh, anyone committed to that much work, but it sure was a great party. <laughs> Yes, and I thought maybe in honor of it being the 10th anniversary of the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, we could talk a little bit about the benefits of the organization and other organizations like it for people's various practice areas. It was um, uh, a decision I made back in about 2007 to go to the U.S. for a conference. My first conference I went to was the California DUI Lawyers Association annual Coup Watch conference. And it just blew my mind because in all of those years of going to conferences in Canada, I could see that it was sort of inbreeding of ideas. There wasn't really much new going on. And I just learned so much. It's also, I think, like in Canada, I don't know, I feel like in all our local conferences, we often get the same sort of 10 or 15 people speaking. Um, and so I never hear any new ideas because I'm just hearing the same people talk about their same ideas and ways of doing things. And then they teach other people their same ways of doing things. Whereas when you have a national conference in the U.S., you get different perspectives because the law is applied differently in different states. There's different challenges and battles going on. We have people who have like a primarily civil practice related to like police misconduct in DUI investigations, people who have uh, you know, criminal death only or high profile case only practice. We have people who have, you know, just a regular everyday DUI practice. And the DUI Defense Lawyers Association also tries and at every seminar get perspectives from people with different levels of experience. So we always have like a young guns presentation with somebody who's younger and um, you know, to get new ideas flowing into the organization. Well, and also to cover the things that you would want to learn when you are starting out um, as a DUI lawyer, because at some point everybody's got to get started and try some cases. And, <laughs> you know, you, you must be aware that you don't know a lot. Um, you know, you're, you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, and this is the way that you learn it. Yeah. The other nice thing, sorry, I was about to interrupt you, but no, 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 uh, I was no. about to say is, there are almost always people with a scientific background presenting. And so this is something that where we have really dropped the ball in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, in my view, is uh, just a, a lack of um, sort of scientific knowledge about uh, blood and breath testing. Um, so inevitably here, we've gotten you know, one of the leading people from Canada uh, who is more often in the U.S. giving evidence, more often in the U.S. doing research. Uh, and then, um, of course, uh, people from uh, all across the U.S. Right now, Lee Polite is presenting down there, and we've skipped out on it because we 
seen it before or talked to him before, but fantastic to hear his presentation. Yeah, Leapalite uh, runs a lab called Axion Labs, and they offer training for DUI lawyers and for anybody who's interested in um, things like gas chromatography, um, liquid uh, chromatography, mass spectrometry, um, looking at how blood and drug samples are analyzed to look for problems in the method of analysis and to learn how to do it so you can better challenge the police and state evidence when you are defending these cases. So I'm hoping to have Leon in the future, in a future episode, to talk about Axiom in the program there. Yeah, one day we're going to have to go for that one. You and I have both gone to the uh, program in Arlington, Texas. I'm told and work in the blood lab. No, I'm I'm sure. So, you know, the, the only issue for me is, you know, there's, for me, how often do I have a blood case? Um, and when I do, I know already how to defeat it. Well, I mean, how often do you have a blood case and how often does it actually go to trial? But for those rare occasions where it does, having that additional, you know, knowledge is certainly helpful. Well, it's another, again, issue of not knowing what you don't know, right? Uh, there's lots of lawyers I know in Canada who run blood cases and not known how to challenge any of the uh, testing procedures, the continuity, the, the results. Yep. Um, and they just don't know, you know, what arguments could be made. And so they end up just focusing on charter issues and whether or not there was a charter violation and trying to get it ruled inadmissible. But if it's admissible, they just sort of throw their hands up and say it's blood. Well, I have to tell you, uh, we, you and I learned a lot about blood testing over the years, <laughs> and there is plenty of room for error, mistake, and miscalculation. Absolutely. Now, I wanted to talk about something else yeah. today, and that's electric vehicles. I know we talked about them a couple of weeks ago as far as the British Columbia government regulating them, but there are all sorts of other interesting sort of legal issues going on with electric vehicles right now. I was on CKNW yesterday, and... Um, Somebody called in to point out the danger of the speed and power of electric vehicles, uh, particularly for new drivers. And uh, we have already discussed that there is going to be speed regulation on uh, trucks over uh, 11,000 kilograms coming up in BC, speed limiters. Um, and uh, one wonders if that's going to have to be brought into play when you think of the amount of torque and instant power you have in electric vehicles. Well, I also think, you know, all of our engineering, and you've mentioned this and you can probably explain this better than I can, but all of our engineering for city streets, residential streets, parking structures, is all predicated on sort of the weight of your average vehicle. But you've told me something really interesting about electric vehicle batteries. Well, they're heavy, right? Um, so, you know, I don't have the numbers here in front of me because I didn't know we were going to discuss it on that <laughs> basis. But, um, you know, you've got an electric vehicle and it can weigh double what a normal vehicle would weigh of a roughly similar size because the batteries are so heavy. So Teslas have special tires. Um, the uh, tires that are in them have inserts in them because if they deflate, for whatever reason, we're talking of serious danger as a result of the weight of the vehicle. And, of course, there was this parking garage that collapsed uh, in New York. And one of the discussions right away was, has anybody sat down and done the calculations for a parking garage that is filled with electric vehicles? Now, think further on that one. 
bridges. We're in the United States. Joe Biden has a uh, huge program now to rebuild the infrastructure in this country. If you've ever been to Chicago, you can discover that much of Chicago is elevated um, because they raised it up so they could uh, basically at some point wash the sewage out into the lake. And it's, I suppose they solved that another way since. But um, you, you wander around underneath where it's elevated and you can see that it, it's so corroded, the steel, that it's ready to collapse. How does it deal with a bridge deal with... Uh, additional weight and when traffic is blocked Ooh. and suddenly you've got a bunch of Teslas or whatever electric vehicles for lightnings. Well, even look at like, you know, you're thinking about making an investment in building a new bridge or a new crossing, like the Massey Tunnel Replacement Project that's maybe going to get underway. Well, the Petulo Bridge Replacement Project, a friend of mine's working sure. on that. Yeah. And have they done all those calculations I'm, on the basis of? Because as we know, what is it, 2031, only vehicles sold in British Columbia will have to be electric vehicles. So at what point are we looking at the structures that we're building and calculating for the additional wear and tear and damage of an increasing population of electric vehicles? And I actually have some statistics for you. Okay, let's see. Did you know that the average electric vehicle battery weighs 1,200 pounds? That's crazy. That's a lot of weight. I can barely lift a car battery for like my car, my non-electric car. Twelve hundred pounds. So, you know, ten year old. <laughs> that's the equivalent of having uh, like eight people in your car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the um, GMC Hummer electric vehicle. Oh yeah. That is the heaviest electric vehicle, coming in at nine thousand pounds. Wow! Think about a heavy-duty truck. Yeah. That'll. Uh, yeah. 9,000 pounds. 9,000 pounds. So, I mean, we're going to see more and more trucks and SUV-type vehicles as electric vehicles. Sure, because people love SUVs. Yep. And people love pickup trucks. Yep. So, one Hummer is three regular old Honda Civics. So, we're essentially, if we can operate on those calculations, we're doubling to tripling our traffic volumes on the roads. If you have 50 cars on a bridge uh, because of noise here. 50 cars on a bridge because of a, um, a blocked up traffic or something like that. Uh, now it's 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and it. when the engineers designed it as two times overbuilt or even three times overbuilt, now it's, it's <laughs> slightly more than that. And that's not even calculating in the fact that the bridge has aged and has had these heavy cars on it many, many times over causing whatever stress uh, and damage to that bridge. Yep. So the average weight of an electric vehicle is between 3,200 and 4,200 pounds. Okay. So about double a car. Yep. And then, of course, there's lots that are a lot more, like there's the the Volvo electric SUV is about 1,000 pounds more than their gas-powered model. Uh, Ford F-150 electric is 1,600 pounds more than your regular F one fifty. So we're dealing. So what about these big Tesla trucks, um, <laughs> the Tesla semis, compared to a semi at you know starting at eleven thousand kilos? I wonder how many. Yeah, I mean, at some point we're going to have <sighs> an issue as well as as we increase battery sizes in electric vehicles or have the dual battery electric vehicles. We're going to have 
electric vehicles that are meant for passenger driving or recreational driving, but are in fact the same gross vehicle weight as commercial vehicles. And then what do we do about the licensing schemes and the requirements? So you take your Ford Lightning F-150, it's a half-ton truck, and throw a half-ton of something in the back. Yep. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you're very dangerous if you're involved in a collision and very dangerous to the roadways, which brings me to my second point about electric vehicles and their weight and the absence of any regulation or really thought processing about this. What does this mean for motor vehicle collisions? Because basic physics and also studies that have come out have shown that you're safer in an electric vehicle in a collision than a non-electric vehicle because you have the weight advantage. Well, you have the weight advantage. They're also all brand new. They also, I mean, the Teslas avoid collisions pretty well. um, And that's factored in as well. But yeah, the weight is a major issue. Um, What about... um, Taxation. I mean, there's been tax breaks for most electric vehicles to encourage people to to take them. But with that weight, how much more damage are they doing to the road? Yeah, I mean... Road maintenance costs. All of these things are things that governments haven't really thought about. (laughs) And we're only discussing it because a parking garage collapsed. (laughs) And we don't even know if it was filled with electric vehicles, but... Somebody commented on it, and now everybody's like, oh, hang on. I should have. There's a lot of other considerations. I should see if Bo and Ma will come on the uh, podcast again and talk about, you know, some of the transportation ministry stuff that's going on and whether they're factoring in the weights of electric vehicles. Well, she would know. Um, Actually, she probably wouldn't know. I think that's probably being done by people below her. Well, she would know that it's <laughs> happening. I mean, she's an engineer. I think she's a structural engineer, so she would likely be alert to the issues at this point. But uh, we have these changes to the Motor Vehicle Act um, that are thinking very forward. Um, might not agree with all of them, but they are very forward-thinking changes, anticipating a lot of new technology. And uh, they don't seem to be dealing with that. So there may be other legislation that's in the works to address that aspect. Now, third thing about electric vehicles, there's been a lot of scrutiny lately over the federal government, who is giving a, I think it's $13 billion um, subsidy to the Volkswagen Corporation, a multi-billion dollar international corporation, to build an electric vehicle battery plant in Canada. Yeah, and I'm excited about it, and I'm very enthusiastic about it for lots of reasons. I mean, um, firstly, Volkswagen is huge. Uh, Volkswagen owns Audi, Bugatti, uh, Bentley, Lamborghini, um, Seat, and uh, Punch buggy. probably others that I'm forgetting. There's the, uh, uh, but in any event, so they're a, a huge manufacturer. Um, and right now, as it stands, a lot of the metals um, for car batteries are already being mined in Ontario. So nickel is a huge product from it. And what has been happening is the nickel from uh, that's mined in uh, Sudbury, Ontario, is put on a ship, um, shipped to uh, Germany, where it goes through a smelter, and then it's shipped to Japan, where it's turned into a battery, and then it's shipped back to a Volkswagen plant in Slovakia, where they assemble SUVs. 
Um, and so this is really um, more than just a battery plant. It's going to be processing of the of the ore that is extracted in Ontario. So it's creating 3,000 jobs immediately. Um, and it's going to be long-term production, long-term good jobs in a interesting industry that is uh, great for the Canadian economy. Yeah. I mean, there's all those benefits. But isn't there something kind of like frustrating about the federal government subsidizing a multi-billion dollar corporation's venture in Canada that's ultimately just going to make them billions of more dollars when it's easier for them to produce electric vehicles that are then going to be sold not just by happenstance, but by legislation to the market where we're deprived of consumer choice? Well, that's a complex issue. So governments provide subsidies all over the place to try and attract investment. And they know that if they don't do it here, they'll do it somewhere else. And those jobs will go somewhere else. And all of those 3,000 people are going to earn money and pay taxes. Um, and uh, corporations, to some extent, you know, have us by the throat uh, when they make these deals. Um, I can say that having monitored um, the way German companies behave, um, they often behave in not great ways. Uh, Siemens, Bosch, all of those companies have been in trouble for for bribes and such things, and particularly in third world countries where they're building uh, building dams and hydroelectric plants. Uh, Volkswagen has not always been straight up, as we know about the uh, the Volkswagen uh, scandal with their diesels, um, and of course that was not just Volkswagen in the end; that was Bosch doing it with Volkswagen, uh, BMW, and Mercedes. But Volkswagen bore the brunt of that. Um, these are not uh, companies that really come at it with clean hands, although I think there's a genuine intent to um, clean up their image, and that's part of it. One way or another, somebody's going to be building these batteries somewhere, and we want it to be in Canada. And I think that's really the rationale here. Yeah. I just don't like the government basically paying companies to come when they're going to create a product that the public is not going to have a choice but to buy. Well, the other thing that gets me about it is no matter what, it's just like, okay, consumers consume. Consumers, go consume. Here we are dealing with a problem that we have of our own making of, of dumping carbon into the atmosphere. And so now we're going to switch to something else. And how much money can we make using tons of energy to switch to something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, the answer for humanity is to have fewer humans. Um, and, you know, we have 8 billion right now, and it won't be long before we have 10. And, uh, you know, if we had 2 billion and we were, were using cars that burned, you know, carbon that's extracted from the earth, it probably wouldn't have affected our atmosphere nearly the same way. And so we're just looking for ways of being able to fit more and more consumers to consume because we work on this growth model uh, that, uh, and we haven't figured out a way to have our economies not work on some growth model. It's too bad, but you're not going to change it, I don't think. And so you have to deal with what you've got. Yes. Well, I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Um, you know, I, I'm skeptical, I will say about whether this legislation that's going to require all vehicles to be 
new vehicles so it can be easy. The electric is actually going to be implemented when the deadline comes. Because I think about, like myself, where I live right now, I live in a place where it would be impossible to have an electric car. I can't choose to buy one because I can't. I, there's nowhere I can plug it in. I don't have a driveway. I don't have a house that has the power to support it because it's an old house that I rent. Uh, where where would I plug in this mystical electric car? Well, the city didn't require us to change any of the power at the office to no. create electric car plug-ins behind the office. No, the parkade where building <laughs> parkade where we rent space next door to our office uh, is not equipped for it either. No. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. Um, California in the past has legislated changes to cars. And because they are such a large economy, all the car manufacturers addressed it. So even car manufacturers that were selling a marginal number of vehicles in California included California emissions in the 1970s. And that was the beginning of the catalytic converter. And this, these were all decisions that were made where California forced the rest of the world to come around the rest of the world, I guess, North America, <laughs> but Europe also followed, right? Because they recognized they could do it, and that's where the vehicles are manufactured. You know, I think uh, either we will see an extending, you know, actually you, the other, we were walking somewhere the other day, and you were pointing out all the cars in the neighborhood, and you said you never see old cars anymore. Like, you don't see people driving around like they used to when I was a kid, driving around some beater that was 20 years old. Yeah. I know. That's, it's very rare now that you see old cars. Um, I think people will be forced to until their buildings and their neighborhoods adapt, forced to put the money into maintaining the old cars and continue to drive them or right. import cars from it, other provinces. It, it, could be that, it could be when we're walking down the street that we don't know the age of those cars. You know, they could be 12 years old. I guess that used, to be, car and you don't that used to be an old car. Yeah, my you car know. doesn't look like a 10-year-old car. No. The car it looks is. like a two-year-old car, <laughs> but that's just cars last longer and are in better built than they used to be. I know that because I have three old cars, and, <laughs> and uh, there's there's absolutely no way that you could see, say that the older ones are better. No, I think we're just going to end up looking like the streets of Cuba. Could be, where we keep these cars going for a long time, but a lot of things in, in newer cars have a timeout. Um, the, um, I had a car that I recently, uh, sold to a friend that had parts in there that would, uh, indicate that it had to be replaced at a certain number of kilometers and you'll get an error message for forever, even though that part's never going to wear out. The manufacturer just has it set. So I, uh, I know my, uh, friend of mine in Germany, uh, his company bought a Volkswagen Golf and when it hit a certain number of kilometers, it would not operate without a bunch of error messages to replace a bunch of things that were uh, more expensive than replacing the car. So we'll see. We'll see how that one plays out. Well, Paul, it's now time for the ridiculous driver of the week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Okay, this one <laughs> is odd. You, you told me the headline when we were trying to find our ridiculous driver of the week, and I was like, eh, 
But then I saw the pictures. So this is a driver who was seen in Bakersfield, California, I'm pretty sure, um, uh, towing a 50-foot utility pole. And originally, I had sort of in my head, I like pictured a tow truck of like with a utility pole, like you know, some sort of installation truck, like driving badly. No, no, no. Yeah, when I saw the headline, I expected it fell off the back of a truck, or he had it mounted halfway up on a pickup truck, and part of it was on the ground. Yeah, no, this was somebody like with a family SUV. <laughs> I thought it was a Nissan Versa or something like yeah, that. Anyway, like it's just, just a normal just vehicle, a regular vehicle. A- bunch of chains attached to the bumper and they're stealing this like actual electrical um, utility pole. A wooden wooden utility pole. I guess was supposed to be oh it was a 2007 Subaru. (laughs) Of course it was a Subaru. There you go. You can do do anything with a Subaru. That's true. Um, Yeah it was like waiting there to be installed and uh, they just they they took the pole. the person who took them did not get criminally charged, thankfully, but they did get a number of traffic tickets, and their vehicle was impounded, um, and their passenger in the vehicle was also arrested on some outstanding warrants. This is pretty significant public humiliation, um, because yeah. people yeah. in Bakersfield are going to know yeah. who this was. Uh, my favorite part is the end of the news story where from BakersfieldNow.com, uh, where it says the ba- Bakersfield Police Department would like to take this opportunity to stress to the public that dragging 50-foot poles weighing in excess of 1,000 pounds with chains along city roadways is dangerous and against the law. <laughs> oh, really? This needs a reminder? I mean, I can see like pulling it 20 feet into a different location or something like sure. that if there was some good legitimate reason. But can you imagine like going around a corner? But, you know, <laughs> I, I often see like utility poles that are basically waiting for installation lying flat on the ground. And you think about taking streets. them yourself and for your own use. You know, it's not guarded. There's no sign. And it's on, you know, city property. Uh, by the rules of the way the world works, if it's on the curb, it's free for the taken. Often you would think that, but I think the circumstances <laughs> surrounding a utility post are probably, probably different. And you wouldn't firewood. you wouldn't want to burn them. They're not firewood because they're all treated with some sort of chemical to keep them from rotting. So if you were to, there's lots you could do with it. I mean, you might have some great use for that utility pole cut up build your retaining wall because it's treated lumber. Yeah. However, I think most people would reasonably assume that it has an intention (laughs) and that the government owns it for, and is going to use it for some legitimate purpose. I just admire the gull. Well, I just keep trying to visualize how you take a corner. How do you take a corner when you're pulling a 50 foot utility pole? First, you've got 12 feet of chain. And then what happens to the pole when you take a corner? Anyway, I wonder, uh, you know, Maybe they were driving really, really slowly. Who knows? But it's, uh, it's it's a pretty good, ridiculous driver. You know, I'm always looking for something where there's nudity. Um, this was just <laughs> a really big pull. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's our podcast. If you need to get in touch with us about a driving law-related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.